One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked, ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. The good chef is not necessarily a good teacher. I find myself always learning the new recipe to teach my student. That was Chef Cheng Pao Hua. For the last 30 years, she's been on a mission to investigate, test, and preserve classic Taiwanese street food. Her students, many of them professionals, often end up cooking and selling street food for a living, continuing that long tradition of Taipei. I'll be speaking to reporter Jason Struther about his trip to Taipei and his interview with chef Cheng Pao in just a bit. But first, Maria Godoy, senior editor at NPR Science Desk and also host of The Salt, is here to talk about Shonen Knife, a punk Japanese band that has garnered a cult following for its songs about food. Maria, how are you? Good. How are you, Chris? So uh, I guess the pop quiz is which band plays songs entitled Strawberry Cream Puff Sushi Bar Wasabi and Ramen Rock. What band would that be? That would be 
Japan's legendary shonen knife. There are three women, and they've been around since 1991. They're from Japan. They formed in Osaka in 1981, and um, they've gone through a lot of members, but the two core are sisters, Atsuko and Naoko. And Naoko is a front woman. And they basically were like clerks in Japan in the 80s, inspired by the Ramones, and they started doing this pop-punk thing. And they've got a big cult following. I actually went to YouTube, of course, to, to research this, and like them. Maybe you could just describe the style somehow? I would describe it as like Ramones meets, uh, I don't know, Judas Priest sometimes <laughs> meets Britney Spears. <laughs> Maybe you could say. <laughs> um, it's, it, it's, it's very catchy and playful and whimsical. They're infectious, I think is the word that I would use. They just sort of like make you happy to be alive. And obviously, uh, they sing about something that we all love, which is food. Now, I read that they were asked to go on tour with Nirvana in 91. Uh, but they said no, right? No, 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 no. They they toured in 91 with Nirvana. And they also toured again. I think it was a UK smaller venues. And then in 93, they toured with Nirvana again and the Breeders. And it was stadium tours. They were one of the actually top 50 all-time bands um, for Kurt Cobain. If you look at his... Um, really? He had this list. Yeah, he had this... He was a huge admirer of them. Huh. If you look at old interviews, he would rave about Shonen Knife constantly. But that's when they got to know each other in 91. Uh, Naoko told me... When Kurt Cobain asked her to tour, at first she was a little bit scared because they looked wild with all their grunge look, like the unwashed grunge look of the early 90s. So they had a uh, 2017 USA Ramen Adventure Tour. Uh, What was that? Um, Well, as uh, Naoko told me, sushi's already big, but ramen is getting hot now. And so they were riding the ramen wave. By night, they were playing gigs all across the U.S. By day, they were sampling ramen in different U.S. cities, which is not a bad way to tour, if you ask me. What does the name Shonen Knife mean, actually? Uh, I believe it refers to, like, a pocket knife, that like a boy's pocket knife. Hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, here's the one thing. There's a lot of new generation of Shonen Knife listeners, including my children, because their songs are so much fun to sing along to. Like, they have this song, Banana Chips, and when I was reporting this story, my kids, who are three and seven, were just running around the house singing it all day long. <laughs> So why are they focused on food as the sort of theme of the band? You know, I asked that, and it's one of the themes, but when I asked now, because when she started out, she was pretty shy, and singing about love songs, which is the standard stuff of songs, was really embarrassing to her. She is just, like, not a topic she felt comfortable singing about in public. But food was something that pretty much everybody could relate to, and that was pretty important in her life. So that's what she clung to, and it's worked. And, and your favorite food-related song, uh, Sushi Bar, Wasabi, Ramen Rock, Brown Mushroom. What's the one you like best? Uh, I would think Ramen Rock <laughs> because it's like a very empowering, almost feminist anthem about a bowl of ramen. You're going to have to explain how a song about a bowl of ramen is, uh, in fact, empowering. Um, okay. it's a, it's a, The lyrics go, ramen noodles touch the power. And um, it's actually about them going out and eating ramen after shows. And I just, I just think uh, th- you listen to it. It's such a hard, like, the, the, the hard guitar in it. It makes you want to rock out. And uh, I don't know. It makes you feel like very punk rock. I'm going to tell my favorite food. It's perfect after the show. Bowl of Ramen, uh, a song called Banana Chips, and people who've been on the road for 35 years. And, and, and let's just not just people, it's women in rock for 35 years. That's you know, true. Uh, I think we got to give them props for that to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I will never eat a bowl of ramen again with the same point of view. Maria, thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. That was Maria Godoy, senior editor, NPR Science Desk, and also host of The Salt. 
As always, you can subscribe and listen to Milk Street Radio as a podcast. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, also on Spotify. Now let's take your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Of course, she's the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, my name is Laura Shepard. I'm calling from Maryland. Hi, and uh, I'm sure you have a thorny question for us. I just appreciate you taking my call because I do. Okay. <laughs> In regard to pleasing my husband, so of utmost importance. Oh, always. Um, he really doesn't like dark meat chicken, so I do a lot of chicken breast. I guess I've mostly gone by, you know, sometimes using the thermometer, but also just, you know, cutting into the meat and seeing the juices run clear and the color white throughout. I've taken that to be a sign of doneness of a chicken breast. But he's complained sometimes about rubbery chicken, and he's squeamish that it's not cooked through and he's going to get sick. So I'm just wondering if there is an explanation for what he's calling rubbery chicken, if it has to do with the texture or if it is actually underdone and there's a different way that I can be testing. Uh, instant read thermometer would be the only good way to do it. And make sure you put it in horizontally and do it three or four different places. But you should get 160 to 165, and then there's no argument. You can even look pink sometimes in the center, even though it is actually cooked. So instant read thermometer is the way to go. Do you think there's a chance that you've overcooked it, and that's yes. why it's more chewy? Well, I've wondered that, too, but his solution to the rubberiness is to nuke it, just oh, to make no. sure there's no salmonella or something, and then he's convinced he's not going to die. So, well, there's um, two issues here. You know, you can't have it both ways. I actually was going to suggest that maybe the issue is your husband, not the chicken. I, I, mean, I hate to do that because you sound very happily married, but let me just say this. If he uh, really wants to get rid of the salmonella, yeah, cook it to death, but then it's going to be very chewy and dry. No, no, I, I have a suggestion. You can either sous vide it. I was going to say sous vide. For like 100 bucks, 150 bucks, you can buy one of those sous vide towers, you know, and put that in any pot of water and set it to 165 and put the uh, chicken or the turkey breast in a bag, press out the air and just cook it. And you can cook it for a couple hours. It'll never overcook. Really? Uh, okay. The other thing you can do is do a fake sous vide, put it in a bag, try to press out the air, put it in the water, bring the temperature up to about 175, and let it sit there. The other thing you can do, my favorite thing, is get a whole chicken, put it in four and a half cups of water, add two cups of very dry sherry, some ginger and scallions, and bring that up to a simmer, add the chicken, Cook it for 15 minutes, breast side down. Flip it, breast side up for 10 minutes. So that's 25 minutes total. Turn off the heat and let it sit for about half an hour. And it will always cook perfectly to 160, 165. But the trouble is the husband doesn't like dark meat. Well, well he, he can, can have the white meat and she can have the dark yeah. meat. <laughs> Jack Spratt would eat no fat. I mean, yes. you know, it's, it's the perfect marriage. Yes. Well, thanks for the reminder about that. I appreciate it. I've yeah. forgotten. I've done it, you know, once or twice and then forgot. So that's helpful. It's not good for that much. I mean, I wouldn't do a steak that way. But chicken? Yeah. Sure. Anyway, sous vide is the way to go. Right. For that. All right. Thank All right. you very much. Thanks, thanks for your call. Best Bye. wishes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have calling? Hi, it's Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. How can we help you? First of all, I just want to say that you and Chris make a fantastic duo. I love this segment of Milk Street Radio. It's the best. Oh, thank you. So, first of all, a statistic. In 2014, nearly one in every four households in the United States were single-person households. Wow. I want to talk about the single-person households, the people who are eating three meals a day by themselves, trying to keep it interesting. And if they're like me, they don't want to fill the freezer with a bunch of doodads, usually unidentifiable in a little while. I'm a personal chef, and I'm, I'm interested in learning more about how I might come home at the end of a day and feed myself, cut down on the packaging, and cut down all of the waste that goes on and on. Well, a few recipe ideas. I would use a rice bowl and a noodle bowl. I make rice a lot, and then you have something simple you can put on it, including a leftover combined with different ingredients, the same with noodles. And finally, when I freeze, I freeze in one-person portion or two-person portions. Oh, I know. And that's, if you're making super stew, that makes some sense too. But I think in terms of a bowl, I don't think about a meat and two veg. So I have noodles, I have rice or a simple soup, 
and I just put a little bit of something interesting on top of that. But that's the way I would cook if I was cooking just for myself. Hmm. Elizabeth, I'm interested that you're anti-freezer because <laughs> the freezer is really your best friend. Well, I just love leftovers because then you don't have to start from scratch. You just look at something you're like, oh, I'll shred that up and throw that in a taco or, you know, or an egg dish. Egg dishes are wonderful, too. They're a vehicle for all sorts of leftovers, like a frittata you can throw anything into or just make some quick soup, you know, like Chris was suggesting and throw in some shredded chicken and some vegetables. I think soup is the best vehicle on the planet. It's the one thing I don't eat very much of at all. Oh, my goodness. It no, can... I really don't. The question is how to cook for one in a way that suits you. You don't want leftovers. You don't want the freezer. What kind of cooking would suit you for that? Well, I love to grill. Well, there you and go. if I'm going to light the grill for one person, I'm going to do, you know, 10 chicken thighs that have been marinating for a little bit, and nine of them end up in the freezer. And that's not a bad thing, you guys, really. It's not a bad thing, but it's not what I prefer to do. The only other alternative is to buy very small quantities every day of whatever you want, and then you don't have a lot of leftovers, right? You can get one chop, or you could get one chicken breast, or you can get two or three thighs, you know. Right. I think in America... We're starting to think about dinner differently. I, I was going to say rethink eggs, dinner. Every culture breakfast, uses breakfast eggs. For dinner. A frittata. The Japanese have really interesting forms of omelets. You can do a million different dishes just with eggs, and they all taste totally different. Rethink supper. Right. You know. Oh yes. There you go. Okay. So right. in 2030, should we talk again? Oh yes, absolutely. Sounds like a plan. I think in six months we should all go look at each other's freezer. Yes. <laughs> See all the you stuff that's been in there that we're now going to yeah. throw out. So. Yes. Elizabeth, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. You guys keep on doing the work you're doing. It's so appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mostly Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question, give us a ring. 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Candice Yamagata, and I'm from Washington, Utah. How can we help you today? I am a left-handed cook, not a very good cook, but a cook, and I have not been able to find a serrated knife that is beveled for a left-handed person. I've asked nice experts about left-handed knives and have been told there is no difference, and I agree with that when cutting with a knife that is beveled on both sides like Japanese knives are, but with a serrated knife, to me it makes a difference. Well, I'm also left-handed. Let me ask you a question. So when you're slicing with a serrated knife, what happens? If I slice, say, a tomato, the bevel is on the right side, so the knife kind of swings out away from the meat of the tomato. Uh So the slice sometimes comes out thinner on the bottom because it's curving to the right. There are some left-handed stores. No, 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 hold on. No, this is true. No, I know, but I'm right-handed, so I'm being introduced to this murky world. So I didn't know a serrated knife had a bevel. Let's just start with that. Is that true? It's beveled? Yes, they are. You know what, Candace, I've always just powered on and not worried about it very much. (laughs) I think it's the handle on a Japanese knife that's the issue, not the blade. If I look at my Japanese knives, they are beveled on both sides. And I think you have talked to them about the angle of the bevel. So it's even on both sides. It is. So when I cut with that, I'm fine both ways. It's just the serrated that kind of swings out away from That's really interesting. Right. There are some stores that make completely left-handed stuff. If you Uh Google, you know, left-handers, you will find them. And I know they sell knives as well. And I bet you they sell serrated knives. Well, Sarah, it's good to know that you're left-handed and you just power on, and maybe we, that's what I well, need to do I just, instead of well, looking for something. But that's, that we have to get work. to know Sarah, though. I and mean, when it comes to something like that, that's what Sarah would do, right? Well, you know, I've just, got bigger issues, like scissors. I'd like a left-handed pair of scissors. I know those exist, too, but I can't be bothered to buy one. I sew, and so I have a pair of professional left-handed Fiskars, and I don't loan them to anybody. Right. <laughs> because if somebody right-handed tries to cut with those, they'll mess, mess it, it up. I, that's mess what I'm up. getting, Sarah, for Christmas. Yes, yes. That is what I need. Well, that's actually, I want to go check that out. I never knew that about serrated knives. Serrated knives, yeah. yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, Candace, you know we're very special. We're only one in ten. 
and uh, I know, we're very creative, I know. very creative. <laughs> Einstein was left-handed. So Sarah's walking down the street going, I'm left-handed, I'm just like Einstein? What? No, 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 it's just we're very special. We need to stick together. You, you know? and Candace are very special. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Candace, uh, d- just Google left-handed stores. You'll find what you want. Okay. Or power on. Well, no, no. Do, may I just say one thing, right. though? You want to get a really good serrated knife. There's a lot of lousy serrated knives out that's there. For so sure. I, I would rather use a really good bread knife or serrated knife that's right-handed. So you want to make sure you get a good quality knife. Yeah, know, he may so. have a point there. Yes, and I agree with that. And so maybe the powering on is just the answer the way to for go. that. Yeah. Candace, thank you very much for calling. <laughs> All right, thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, Milk Street heads to a cooking school in Taiwan to learn about bringing the spirit of classic flavors of street food to the modern kitchen. After the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. 
This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're headed to the Chung Hua Culinary Teaching Center in Taipei, Taiwan. The owner, Chung Pa Hua, is a street food chef gone cooking school instructor who is now bringing the street to the classroom. She's teaching one student how to make Taiwanese hamburger patties. Make sure you put enough cooking oil, otherwise the meat will stick it to the pan. Today I have reporter Jason Struther here in the studio. He's going to tell me about what he learned at the cooking school. Jason, how are you? Not too bad, Chris. So I gather that the uh, old style of cooking is coming back in Taiwan, and you interviewed a culinary instructor who's, I guess, taught a lot of the chefs and uh, street vendors over there in the old ways of cooking. That's right, Chris. I recently visited Chef Chuang Hua. She runs a culinary institute in Taiwan where she teaches uh, chefs how to make old-style Taiwanese dishes. The concept is called gu wei. It's really hard to translate it. I asked her to give me her best shot at that. It's hard to define gu wei. Um, normally, we would say it's a generation passed down to generations uh, recipe. Today's cooking has become more fast food style. Gu zao wei just means taking the time to prep the food and also to preserve that flavor. Now, I've, I did a little research on her, and it sounds like some of the students were looking for work. That is, they were in the financial district. Uh, it was just hard to find a job. Some of them will actually go out and uh, do food stands on the street, right? Uh, right. Most of her students are chefs themselves. They run street stalls uh, in Taipei. And one of the best things about visiting the Taiwanese capital is its street food. In any neighborhood, you'll have uh, outdoor markets with dozens of these tiny little kiosks. And Chef Chuang teaches these chefs how to make their food, you know, embodying this gu wei sort of taste. So could you take us through one of these markets? If you're walking down New York, you'll see a falafel vendor, a hot dog vendor, a sausage vendor occasionally, pretzels. But this is a wholly different thing. So just take us down a block or two if you're walking by. Uh, You go onto an alley, and for about a 100-yard stretch, you'll find food stall by food stall, taking up the entire alleyway. Each vendor specializes in a different dish that could be steamed dumplings, that could be some kind of braised grilled duck, that could be stinky tofu, deep fried chicken patties, you name it. So is is there more to it than this? That is, we're talking about recipes that used to be passed down. Is this part of a culture that is taking a fresh look at its past Or have the Taiwanese entirely moved into the 21st century and are not particularly interested in in what happened before? Taipei has a very cosmopolitan food scene, Chris. Anywhere in the city, you can find restaurants from all over the world. There are many Japanese restaurants, Thai restaurants, Italian restaurants. Jamie Oliver has an Italian place in a very big shopping mall in downtown Taipei. But it's in these back alleys behind the big boulevards that you find these street markets. Uh, Now, I also read that I guess she's had 70,000 students uh, pass through her courses over the decades. Did you chat with any of them? Uh, And and what, what did they say about the process? When I visited Chef Chuang's school, a class was underway. I got to speak with some of her students, including a gentleman, Mr. Wu, who actually lives in Dusseldorf, Germany, and runs a Taiwanese restaurant there. He's learned everything he knows about food from Chef Chuang and comes back every so often to learn what the new uh, street food craze is. 
You know, stinky tofu I still cannot make in Germany because it really too stinky. They say the way uh, they want allow me to do it. Yeah. So this is one of of the most I I missing really in Germany because I cannot do it right now. <laughs> so when you go to Taipei, what you name two or three things you just love to eat there. You know, Chris, when I go there, I meet up with an old Taiwanese friend of mine, and I let her do all the ordering, and I do the eating. I, I know on a recent trip, uh, I enjoyed a, a bowl of steamed crab dumplings, a a bowl of a of a noodle soup with some brisket, uh, but my favorite street food dish is called chi pai, which I believe means chicken steak. It is a big frisbee-sized piece of chicken that has been breaded and seasoned with some kind of spice blend and deep-fried. Absolutely delicious, and I should really try to avoid eating too much of that whenever I visit Taiwan. Well, fried chicken is popular. I mean, you, you live in uh, in South Korea and Seoul. I, there are thousands of fried chicken places there, so I guess it's popular all over the world. Japan. Everyone loves fried chicken around the world. I, I think you also spoke to Chef Chuang's son. Uh, is he going to continue uh, being a teacher like his mother? Chef Chuang says she will eventually retire, although she still has many students to teach, she told me. Uh, but when that day does come, her son, who goes by James, will take over the school. He was an engineer by training, uh, but uh, several years ago, he was tapped to inherit the school and came back to Taiwan, where his mother schooled him on how to make Taiwanese food. He told me he's ready for the responsibility of taking over his mother's school. My name is James Jiang. Zhuang Baohua is my mom. So you've been teaching in the school for about seven years? Yes, yes. And uh, you know, uh, my major is uh, electronic engineering. So uh, cooking is not uh, my, my whole life purpose. So at first, I not liked here. But a couple of years, and uh, I think Taiwanese food is <laughs> Taiwanese food uh, can be very popular in the international. So uh, I have to so I decide that I want to learn all the ability and all the skills to make sure that the Taiwanese food can be the best in the international world. Yeah, did you chat with her about the difference between being a chef and then being a culinary instructor? I asked Chef Chuang if she thought that being a good chef can automatically make you a good teacher. She didn't feel that there was a direct correlation. I think for her, teaching was something that she learned as she went along. The good chef is not necessarily a good teacher. I find myself always learning the new recipe. I still go to night market all the time to research more different recipe to teach my student to make sure that I master this recipe for my students. Um, so I think it's a big challenge for me uh, transform from a chef in the kitchen to the, a teacher in the classroom. So how did she get started? Was this uh, a way to make a living? Was this just her passion in life? Uh, what was she doing before she became a culinary instructor? Chef Chuang grew up in Taiwanese culinary culture. Her parents ran a catering business, so she always knew how to cook. But about 30 years ago, she moved to Taipei after splitting with her husband, uh, and she needed to make ends meet to support her family. She was a single mom. So she opened up her own restaurant. But it wasn't long after that that she opened up her school. Uh, she told me that her goal was to help other women like her support their families by opening up restaurants or opening up a street food stall. And over the years, many of her students have been young entrepreneurial women. 
So with over 70,000 students over her teaching decades, uh, is there going to be 8 jillion food stalls in Taipei now? And they're all graduates of her school. Uh, is there room for all these people to, to compete in the world of food in Taiwan? Street food is a part of Taipei's culinary scene. It's a tradition that is not going away, even though the Taiwanese are, are very cosmopolitan in their tastes. Going to a street food market is still something that people do with their friends or their families. They they pick up a bowl of steamed dumplings, some duck, deep-fried chicken patties, stinky tofu, if they will. You sit at tables outside. You have a drink. It, it's really a part of urban life in Taipei. And I think Chef Chuang can take some credit for keeping this tradition going. After all, she's taught tens of thousands of students over the years. I think she's been successful in installing in them uh, a sense of this guja way, this old-style taste uh, that she feels is essential for keeping Taiwanese food authentic. That was reporter Jason Struther. Guza Wei is a term for the essential flavors of classic Taiwanese cooking. But it's not just about the flavor. It also refers to how the food is prepared, slowly, with care and attention. You know, that notion that food is about the method and attitude of preparation appears all over the world, from Japan and Vietnam to Morocco and South America. It isn't just what ends up on the plate. Of course, it's how it got there in the first place. So cooking is also philosophy. That may sound a tad pretentious, but it may explain why some people cook better than others. They are committed, body and soul. Right now, I'm headed into the kitchen with Lynn Clark to talk about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. How are you? It's summertime and I'm depressed. I mean, I like winter. I like cold weather. You know, I'm one of those people. But one reason is zucchini. It's just, you know, it gets on my mind. You have all this zucchini, and what are you going to do with it? Zucchini boats from the 80s, remember that? Yes, I'm done with sadly. It. But in Italy, here at Mill Street, remember, there is that salad, which is ribbons of zucchini, raw zucchini, into a salad. So today we're going to go use that idea, you know, ribbons of zucchini in a fresh salad. That's right. I mean, it's summertime. Everybody has a ton of zucchini. I get it dropped off at my front door by neighbors. You want to use zucchini fresh, and this is a perfect way to do it. So this salad is really quick, it's easy to make, it's perfect for summertime, it goes alongside any kind of grilled foods that you're making. In order to get those ribbons that you talked about, you use a Y peeler, and that's the peeler that's shaped like the letter Y. The handle is the base of the Y, the blade is at the top of the Y, and you just run it down the length of zucchini. You don't have to worry too much about the size of your ribbons, it's not that important. And we kind of looked at the classics for the flavor of this, but we did look at some modern versions to kind of combine the recipes and make something a little bit different. So we took some inspiration from the River Cafe in London. They use a really bright lemon dressing on this. And then we found a few other recipes that added hazelnuts and really, really fresh herbs. So it's hazelnuts toasted, If you don't have hazelnuts, you can substitute almonds. Just make sure that the nuts are toasted. It really enhances the flavor, and you really want to maintain that crunch when you add the dressing. It's all tied together with some Parmesan cheese, handfuls of basil and mint. It's like summer in a bowl. What do you work for, an ad agency? (laughs) Nicely said. Two things. You can use a mandolin for this, like a $10 cheap plastic one. The peels are a little thicker, which I happen to like. Secondly, dresses just before serving, because if it sits, it'll tend to get a little bit watery over time. Lynn, thank you very much. You're welcome. You can find our recipe for zucchini salad at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Malton, after the break. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. 
You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm great and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Jordy. I'm calling from San Jose, California. Wonderful. How can we help you today? This might be a silly question, but I was wondering if there was a basic quick bread, like a sweet bread recipe that you could do, you know, using your pantry items, you know, was sturdy enough that you could spoon some jam over the top or maybe throw a handful of chocolate chips in it. And when I did my research, it either led me to like pound cake or like a cake recipe? My go-to bread recipe is a soda bread. Okay. But you could add things to that, and it would certainly, with lots of butter and jam, would taste great, but just as a base. And you could add mm-hmm. sugar, and you could do whatever you wanted. But I think a soda bread is 40 minutes, start to finish, 45 minutes. Uh, it has enough chew and heft to be a bread. Those other mm-hmm. things are cake. Pound cake's a cake. Chiffon cake's a cake. Well, my question was, when you said to sweeten adding chocolate chips, are you looking for a dessert or something to serve with the meal? Like a dessert. So, like, oh. you know, when you look it up, you have, like, chocolate bread or, like, you know, pumpkin bread, but something more basic. Well, you know what I was going to throw out? These cream biscuits that actually something yes, James Beard used to make, and it's really a simple recipe. It's, like, two cups of flour, a tablespoon of baking powder, a half teaspoon of table salt, and one to one and a half cups heavy cream. It's just a formula you can remember. And you could add a little bit of sugar, too, if you wanted to. But then what you do is you make that, and I cut them in triangles so I don't waste anything. But you just throw it together real quick, and then you cut it into triangles, and then you cut the triangles in half, and you can throw, say, sliced fruit like strawberries that you've tossed with sugar. And, um, you know, just make a really quick shortcake. The other thing you could do is a one-layer cake. 
during the Second World War, they're called emergency cakes, for example. Uh-huh. And some of them have no eggs in them at all. They're very simple recipes. You can do a chocolate one, which is my favorite, but you can do lots of them. And just one layer cake and an 8 by 8 or 9 by 13 Where would you find that recipe? I think Fanny Farmer would actually have you know, a recipe like that. F- and, and Cook's Illustrated also has a yeah. recipe for it. By the way, you know, in Europe, they make essentially loaf cakes, which is sort of satisfies me. So they might use a little cornmeal. They might flavor with orange. They might use a syrup on top once it comes out of the oven. And those are in a loaf pan, and they're sweet. And that's my favorite way of doing a quick dessert. I've got another idea for a quick dessert. Does it have to be a bread? Well, yeah, I was just looking at like something like a basic idea, but I'll take any idea you want to throw out. Well, here's another one. You can, you can make all sorts of fun French toasts. One of the ones I love is chocolate stuffed. So you take a couple slices of white bread, and you take a couple eggs and a little bit of milk or cream and some vanilla extract, and you whisk that all up, maybe throw a little sugar into it. So you dip one piece of bread into that, you put it in your nonstick pan, and then you put some chopped chocolate. I like dark chocolate. Um, You could also put a few raspberries on top of it, and then you take the second piece of bread, dip it again into this batter of egg and milk and vanilla extract, put it on top, squish it together, and then just saute it in butter and then cut it in triangles, put ice cream on top. Yum. I think a one-layer cake is the... Or or some kind of soda bread, but a a one-layer cake is the way to go. I think cream biscuits... Oh, they're good. There we go. Okay. Okay. We've given you a bunch of ideas, and we totally disagree. I know. I was going to say, one recipe, and I just walked away with, I think, five. So it's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Thank you. Right, Shorty. So okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Malcolm in Ithaca, New York. How are you? Hi, I'm Malcolm. well. It's nice to talk to uh, Chris and Sarah. I've been looking forward to it. My question has to do with cast iron pans and where they can be used, whether it's on a... A gas stove or an electric stove. I've heard that I should not use my um, cast iron pans on an electric stove, but I recall a few weeks ago you had a segment with uh, Adam Gopnik, and he was uh, happily cooking in his cast iron pans on an induction stovetop. So is it true that I can or can't use my cast iron cookware on an electric stove? Uh, You can. The only problem with induction is you can scratch the surface sometimes, so you have to be a little careful of that. But the only thing about cast iron is it takes a long time to heat up. But you could certainly use an electric. I think Sarah cooks on electric, right? I do. I'm stuck with electric. And, you know, when you talk about electric, I don't even know if anybody has the old coil ones anymore. They're almost all glass. And the trouble with... Mine are coils. Oh, they are. Well, even they could get scratched. The trouble with glass surfaces, which is what I'm stuck with, is if you have one of the old-fashioned cast irons, which have sort of a rim on the bottom, or it could have a little burr on it, it could scratch the surface, which just makes it look ugly. The other thing is cast iron's very heavy, as you know, so you might, like, plunk it down really hard, and the glass top can break. Likewise, right. the coil on an electric stove is a little more delicate than what you get on a gas stove. So I would say, yeah, you could just be gentle with it. But That's, I just wanted to clarify one thing also. Induction is not the same as electric. I understood that. Yeah. But what's funny is you seem to be saying... Of course, I can use my cast iron on my old, old old-style electric coils, but the danger is to the stove, not to my pan. Right, Right. absolutely. You you can't hurt your cast iron pan. No, I mean... Unless you wash it out with soap. Yeah. No, no, your your pan will be fine. I would like to say, though, because people don't always know what kind of pans you can use on induction, because induction works by magnetism, not by open flame, that you can use cast iron on induction. It works very well. The pan's fine. It's just how you clean it that's the problem. Yeah, anyway. yeah. And just be g- gentle with your stove because they, you with know. With my stove. <laughs> okay. And with your co-host. Thanks, yeah. Malcolm. <laughs> okay, Malcolm. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much. Okay. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring. That's 855-426-9843. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? This is Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Where Hi, are you calling Kathy. from? I'm calling from Boise, Idaho. How can we help you? Well, I was raised on a farm, and unfortunately, we had goats, and I had bad goat milk as a kid. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. And unfortunately, to this day, I still don't like feta or anything made out of sheep's milk. 
and my husband is lactose intolerant. Oh dear. And I am looking for a substitute for anything that calls, calls for, for cheese. Feta. Well, or any cheese, I would imagine, right? Well, my husband can take like old dried cheese, the older cheese. Yeah, yeah, yeah like like cheddar. parmesan or something. Yeah, or even yeah. cheddar. That's great. Yeah, but I like blue cheese and gorgonzola. So something that's kind of heavy in flavor to replace feta. It's gonna be one of those calls where we try to pretend we have an answer you know, and we don't. No, actually, I do have an answer. Uh, it's, what? It's it's an answer we used to use a lot at gourmet which is ricotta salata, oh. which is aged ricotta. Oh. Because it's got the same texture and the same saltiness. But and if you're lactose intolerant, no. Well. No, that's not going to work. Well, it's aged. It's not aged for two years like Parmesan or something. It's pretty firm. I, you may not be able to have it as lactose intolerant, but it's the closest I could say in flavor to feta. I would just say use just a totally different cheese. I mean, if you gave us an example of a recipe that had feta and you wanted to use something different that you, you all could eat, that, that would be helpful. So, like, I love figs and blue cheese. Mm. Yeah. But he can't handle the blue cheese. Figs and any salty cheese is good. Really, figs and Parmesan is good. Well, just give him the figs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a point. Yes, at, that well, is not nice. Well, okay, but if someone's lactose intolerant, they just can't eat cheese. I mean, they can eat aged cheese, but you're not going to get a creamy gorgonzola thing going on. It's just not going to happen. Now, I remember back in the 70s, well, in the early 70s, when I was following the Grateful Dead around and had long hair and didn't wash my clothes for a couple of years, people were making cheese with tofu, right? I mean, it was like tofu and nutritional yeast and all oh, lemon. Yeah, and all sorts of faux cheeses Yeah, there are faux there. cheeses using tofu. Now, I don't, compared to gorgonzola, no. But for someone who can't eat hardly any cheese, you could look into that because you would get a creamy cheese oh. out of it. But, yeah, I mean, we do eat tofu. So. Well, you eat the gorgonzola, and then you can mm-hmm. make the tofu cheese for your husband. If, if you want something with that texture, I can't vouch for the flavor, but it would at least be in the ballpark of the texture. So you okay. can try that. Yeah, that's a good I idea. I mean, maybe moose wood, the first moose wood or something. Well, there's <laughs> places, a recipe. There's places you can just buy tofu cheese. Okay. Oh, all right. All right. Good. Okay. Thanks take, for calling. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, take care. You too. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Here are a few secret ways to touch up your food just before serving. Number one, salt. It's really good to keep a flaky finishing salt on hand like Malden, for example. You sprinkle it on food just before serving. It's great on steaks and just about anything else. Uh, Lemon juice. A little bit of lemon juice at the end just before serving in a sauce, a soup, or a stew. It brightens flavor, and it also provides a little bit of citrus contrast. The next idea is adding a little bit of sweetness at the end just before serving. A little bit of honey, for example, or just white sugar can balance out other flavors and really punch them up before putting them on the table. Grated or zested ginger is also a wonderful thing to add just before serving. You can also put it over lots of Asian Indian dishes, which gives you a little bit of balance and also a little bit more complexity. And finally, something we do at Milk Street all the time is we grate garlic. A little bit of grated garlic used on a wand-style grater, you get a little bit of something mysterious and additional without that heavy garlic flavor. Wine is often put into one of two categories, that's sweet or dry. This oversimplifies a much more complex discussion, one that involves sugar, alcohol, and also flavor. So is your wine sweet or dry? Wine expert Stephen Muse has the answer. We're here at Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge. I'm here with wine expert Stephen Muse. Stephen, how are you? Uh, Good, Chris. Uh, We have three glasses of wine. Only one is red, and that's all I know. Okay. Well, one of the things that I've encountered that seems to be a constant source of confusion is the seemingly simple, straightforward term, dry. People come in and say, I'd like a dry wine. Or they'd say, I want a wine that's not too dry. And even though this sounds like a very simple, straightforward term, it's actually dangerously imprecise. Because for people like me, who are trying to sell wine, or you're in a restaurant, you talk to a sommelier, 
it's confusing the way this term is used. So we want to spend some time today talking about how to maybe use the term more correctly to have a better chance of getting what you want. This is what happens when you spend so many hours in the wine corner. You just get <laughs> upset. <laughs> okay, so, so dry is imprecise. Yes, dry is terribly imprecise, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to show you why. So you're tasting a naturally made Prosecco, Chris, where the yeasts are never, the dead yeasts are never taken out of the bottle for the secondary fermentation, and so they just devour every scrap of grape sugar that could be left in that bottle. It's <laughs> I was, I was, I, I'm not going to say it's dry, because I know that'll be wrong, but it's not sweet. Right. It's, it's, it's bone dry. Yeah. It's bone dry analytically. That is, if you, if you analyze the wine, you would find that there's just about zero residual sugar that is sugar left over from the fermentation in that wine. But it is also perceived as being extremely unsweet. All right, there's not a scrap of sugar there. So this is a good example of a wine that we can properly call dry because there is no residual sugar in the wine. Got it. And it has this kind of thrilling, slightly astringent, you know, kind I, of I loved it, it, but then again, people call me dry, so <laughs> I guess I, I was perfectly matched to this one. All right. Okay. So now we're going to taste wine number two. This is a, uh, a really delicious Vouvray. And let's see what you think of that, Chris. It's sweeter mm -hmm. than the first one. Mm -hmm. um, hold on. I wouldn't say it's fruity, but I would say it's sweeter. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you definitely get that perception of sweetness. So yeah. let's remember that when we talk about sweetness, we're talking about one of the four or five tastes that the tongue can perceive. In this case, we're talking about a white wine that has a significant amount of residual sugar, sugar remaining in the wine from fermentation, maybe 12 or 15 grams per liter or something like that. So analytically, that is objectively... It's not a dry wine, and perceptually, it's not a dry wine because you can actually taste right. the sweetness in it, right? You with me? I, I feel like I'm about to head off a cliff, but yes, I'm with <laughs> you. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we're going to move on to a third wine, a red one this time. All right. This is a wine that's made uh, in the Lakes District in northern Italy from a kind of a hyper-local grape there called Marzamino. It's interesting. I mean, it has, um, there's a dryness in the mouth. There's a puckering quality right. to it. But it has some sweetness to it. Yeah. But it, you would say it's dry in the mouth. Uh -huh. I mean, it has that dry quality. Right. Okay, so this so. is where we approach the precipice, as you, as you call it. So this is a wine that analytically, it's a red wine, it analytically is completely dry. We wouldn't find more than one or two grams of residual sugar if we analyze this wine. But that thing that you're perceiving as sweetness is fruit. The wine is fruity. Fruitiness in wine often masquerades as sweetness. So you put these two things together and you can see how people can be a little bit mixed up about that. So when they come in and ask me for a dry wine, I'm thinking to myself, well, does she mean a wine that has no residual sugar in it? It's dry. Or does she mean dry, not fruity? Okay, so here are the two meanings of dry. One means not sweet, no sugar, and the other means not fruity. So what you have here in the third wine is a wine that is dry, but the fruit can make it feel as though there is some sweetness there. So when you think about wines, how do you think about choosing a wine that has little residual sugar versus a wine with little residual sugar but has fruit to it? Right. What, what's that choice? Uh, the choice is really what you want to drink at the moment. So the first thing that I poured you we're in, it's a little warm here in the Formaggio today, and I poured you that really nice Prosecco, chilled, thrillingly dry, and you loved it, right? Yes. You know, maybe as an appetizer wine, maybe as an aperitif wine, that's just really ideal on a warm day. Maybe with another kind of meal uh, or with certain kind of appetizers, you really want something that's a little fruitier. So dry means little residual sugar. Yes. And fruity is a separate characteristic that can be with a dry wine or be with another kind That's of wine. That's right. 
but dry is just about sugar. Fruity can give the appearance and the flavor of sweetness right. without being sweet. Right. So this would be fine, except for the fact that it is common to use the word dry as opposed to fruity. So here's, here's my solution to this problem. When you're, when you're ordering wine or you're buying wine and you want wine that is dry, just say, I'd like a wine that is dry as opposed to sweet. When you want a wine that is dry, meaning not fruity, say it. I'd like a dry wine, one that's not fruity. And you're much more likely to get what you want and leave the f poor fellow who's trying to make you happy in a little better position to do so. Well, this is good. This describes us. We're both very dry and a little fruity. <laughs> it's a perfect segment. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, Chris. You know, some people don't like Rieslings. They're just too sweet. Others don't like Chardonnay. They're too oaky. And Paul Giamatti's character in Sideways really hated Merlot. But, of course, many Rieslings really aren't sweet, and white burgundies are made with a Chardonnay grape and are delicious, and, of course, there are good Merlot. Wine is like growing up. As a kid, you're too inexperienced to have opinions. Then, in middle age, you have nothing but opinions. And finally, when you're older, a little like me, experience has taught you that most of your opinions were just plain nonsense. So, for my money, there are just two types of wine. There's good wine and there's bad wine. That's an opinion everyone can agree with. Thanks for listening to Mill Street Radio. If you missed us, you can always listen to our podcast. Of course, it's free on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. You can go to our website at 177milkstreet.com. That's where you can download each week's recipe, get free recipes, subscribe to our magazine, watch our new TV show. It's out in September, or order our cookbook. That's it for now. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by 2Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.